Defense of Plants is made possible by all of our wonderful patrons that support the podcast each and every month over at patreon.com slash plants. Their monthly contributions ensure that Indefensive Plants can continue to bring you amazing botanical and ecological conversations each and every week. If you are enjoying this podcast and want to help make free science communication possible, consider becoming a patron. By supporting the show, you will receive wonderful kickbacks like stickers, producer credits, and access to multiple mini bonus episodes each month. Consider becoming a patron today and help spread the love of plants around the globe. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? I'm doing great because we're talking about a topic that I do not get to dive into very often, and that is lichens, specifically lichens in the urban environment. Joining us is Dr. Jesse Allen, who, together with her colleague, Dr. Jim Lindemer and Jordan Hoffman, have put together a wonderful field guide called Urban Lichens, a field guide for Northeastern North America. And it is a phenomenal field guide at that. As you're going to hear, it is extremely accessible and puts lichens in a whole new spotlight so that people, especially those living in urban environments in the Northeast of North America, can go out and learn something about these wonderful organisms and connect themselves to a rabbit hole of ecological diversity and biodiversity support that I personally didn't realize existed. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Allen. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Jesse Allen, welcome back to the podcast. It has been a really long time since you were first on and a lot has changed since then. But uh, for people that haven't gone through the back catalog, welcome. Let's introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Hey, Matt, thank you so much for inviting me back on the podcast. Um, it's great to have an opportunity to share information about lichens again <laughs> and always. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I'm an assistant professor at Eastern Washington University in the biology department. So that's a university outside of Spokane, Washington. Nice. Yeah. And I teach classes on all sorts of topics and I run a research lab on lichen genomics and conservation. That is awesome. And just the fact that you put lichens and conservation in the same sentence already, you know, I know you, we're friends. It all is good, but I already like you even more because of that, because it's such an obscure group of organisms for so many people. I realize that they are very important. They should be celebrated, but they, you know, they don't get even as much attention as plants do and plants already get kind of the short shrift. So what got you on the lichen bandwagon? Like, where did that interest really start for you? Because, you know, we can all maybe point to one, but to go, I want to study that and devote my career to that is a totally different step. Yes. So, gosh, <laughs> this I always have a hard time knowing where exactly to start this story. But, you know, I'm from Washington State, and I feel very lucky that, you know, having grown up in the Northwest, I always sort of had lichens in my consciousness at some level. Um, and I would really attribute my kind of passion and direction for becoming a lichenologist to some um, fantastic professors that I had when I was an undergraduate student. I'm an alumna of Eastern Washington University. Nice. And yeah, and I had a fantastic mycology professor, Suzanne Schwab, who really brought the whole fungal kingdom to life. And I had another 
a great mentor as well, Robin O'Quinn, who she's a plant systematist um, and worked, I worked mostly with her on species delimitation, but I think bringing those two things like mycology and taxonomy together as an undergraduate, I just saw this amazing opportunity for research. I was like, there are so many unanswered questions here. Um, this is fascinating. And then, you know, surveying all of the fungal life forms out there, I will say that to me, lichens are just the most beautiful and captivating. And I love looking at them. And they are magical in a way because, you know, like you said, they are often neglected, uh, often overlooked. And I like to say that they hide in plain sight mm. because they're really everywhere, um, pretty much in almost every single terrestrial environment. But people don't often notice them. And even if they do, they don't necessarily know what they are. Hmm. So they're kind of, you know, these mysterious creatures uh, that once you then learn a little bit more about them are fantastic. I mean, the symbiosis is just a captivating yeah. relationship between the fungal and the algal partner. And they just have all sorts of, they fit into a lot of um, these larger scale stories and they have a lot of stories themselves to tell us and they provide some really unique information about the environment. It's always a mark of passion for people that it's almost harder to figure out like pinpoint what it is really about them because once you start peeling away the layers you're like oh I like that and that and that's interesting and this is really cool and here's a segue we can talk about this sort of thing and lichens really do kind of feel that way if you are slightly interested in biology because they're poster children for symbiosis. They're poster children for like life in extreme conditions. And like you said, they really are everywhere. I was getting in my car this morning knowing we were going to talk today. And I looked and just under my rear view mirror, there's a little bit of lichen starting to develop. And it's just kind of like on plastic. Really? This is where you choose to live. But they, they seem okay. And to me, uh, if you give me a hand lens and a rock covered in lichen, you won't see me or hear from me for a couple of hours. I mean, there's just endless. But then again, I almost I know almost nothing about them too. So there's so many different things to unpack there, and and I, I'm happy there's people like you to kind of like bring some of that to the forefront and tell us why we should be looking at them and what is cool because really any organism has a story. That's the whole point of this podcast. But we need people like you to help tell those stories because you know lichens aren't moving, they're not talking, they're not telling us about all of their mysteries. You kind of need to go working for it. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel very grateful to be able to be a lichenologist <laughs> um, and to devote my life to studying these organisms. So I'm I'm very lucky in that regard. It's such a matter of paying close attention with them and slowing down and looking carefully. And like you say, taking one rock and looking at every single thing on there. And honestly, when I first started collecting lichens, that's so what I did, it was like I brought this huge rock back into the lab and I was trying to identify all the different things on there. And then I brought in this entire tree branch <laughs> and was trying, I was like, just, you know, it was a little bit overwhelming. And I think this happens to a lot of people. And again, this is something that's really um, for anybody who stops to look at lichens really closely. It's pretty remarkable to see how many species co-occur on such in, on such a small scale. And then you kind of start to do this mental calculation out from there across the entire land, air, surface, and you realize, like, there are a lot of lichens on this planet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. And, I mean, part of what you do is trying to understand what is sort of the breadth of this diversity. And I can see there being a distinct challenge 
in like an identification because they can be obscure. They can be in weird spots. What do they look like in this place versus this sort of habitat? And I, again, I'm a novice, so I don't know how steadfast any rules really are in like an ID, but it can, I'd imagine, as someone who's kind of dabbled in it, be a difficult task to try to understand things, but that's where a lot of your work on sort of the molecular level comes into play, where you have actually identified new species, cryptic diversity, so to speak, or just, you know, these things tucked away up in a mountain in Appalachia somewhere that, you know, maybe a lot of people have been there, but have the right people been there to look at that and go, what is that? Absolutely. And, you know, that sort of train of thought really brings up the need for continued biodiversity, basic biodiversity mm. surveys, right? So continuing to go out and like collect and document lichen diversity everywhere is really important. Um, and creating voucher specimens that we can look at in the future, creating, you know, and depositing those in herbaria. I think that's like, that work is invaluable and it continues um, to be kind of the foundation for biology in general, you know, I would argue those basic biodiversity surveys are foundational. And with lichens, there's still a lot that we have to learn. And indeed, we can bring in that those, you know, in addition to looking at their ecology, their distributions, their morphology, their anatomy, um, bringing in that genetic data can be so key. And it's actually like, gosh, it's also fascinating, because, you know, we use certain pieces of the genome usually when we're conducting phylogenetic analyses or doing some taxonomic work. And then once we take a closer look at the genomes of these organisms, some really crazy things start to happen. Mm. And we realize that, for instance, we take something as basic as the ploidy of an organism. And, you know, with most things we know, like we're diploid, right? We're diploid. We reproduce sexually in every generation as humans. Um, with a lot of plants, there can be variation in ploidy, there can be all sorts of, you know, hybridization, all of these sorts of processes. But we have a, an idea for most organisms what their ploidy might be. <laughs> and with lichens, it turns out we don't actually even know that necessarily. <laughs> um, so, oh. so with most ascomycete fungi, so most lichenized fungi fall in the ascomycota. Okay. And we when we draw like our basic life cycle for that group for that phylum usually the vegetative part of that life cycle uh we draw you know we say these usually they're haploid and that's the case in many in many groups in ascomycota well <laughs> it turns out that's maybe not the case with lichenized fungi and it's hard to say how widespread this is but um when i first started here at eastern one of the the first things I did was to sequence the genomes of the wolf lichens. So this is the genus Lotharia. Um, if you've ever been to Western North America, especially in more like semi-arid places, it's that like really bright, beautiful, bushy, yellow, green lichen that oh, grows on trees. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Iconic. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I, beautiful, beautiful group. <laughs> I know it in looks. <laughs> yes. And so, um, you know, around here uh, in Eastern Washington, it's really abundant, it's really common. So uh, I do, um, I use the Oxford Nanopore Minion platform to sequence genomes. And so I was like, let's start with this like lovely iconic species. Hmm. And we sequenced the genome for Lesseria columbiana. 
which is a sexually reproducing, mostly sexually reproducing species, and Lotharia lupina, which mostly reproduces with these little specialized bundles of fungi and algae. Hmm. And what we found was that Lotharia lupina, which, you know, I was like, okay, clearly this thing, you know, probably reproduces clonally most of the time. I'm like, this will be a nice haploid genome. Great, super straightforward. It turned out that it looks like it's maybe triploid. <laughs> like, so maybe that's the case. And then from there, we generated a bunch of population genomic data for that species. And it looks like 30% of the individuals in this area might be triploid. Wow. Some of them are diploid, some are haploid. So anyways, Ooh. who knows? Mysteries abound. <laughs> yeah. So many questions to be answered. Um, and I think that's part of, I. and this is just to bring it back around, something that, that I love about being a lichenologist is it always, it seems like any thread of research that you pull ends up unraveling <laughs> something wild. Like you just <laughs> never know what you're going to get because there's so much left to discover. Yeah, any organism that can like really fundamentally shake our foundation on like what is an organism and how do these things even operate generation to generation it has to be celebrated because it's really those exceptions to the quote unquote rules of biology that we really start to learn some stuff here. But as a genetic novice and someone has done minimal molecular work, when you start talking about sequencing genomes my mind instantly goes to this idea that it's not just one organism in there. So what are you really determining when you're looking at it? Is it like the fungus is really running the show or are you kind of grabbing chloroplast genomes from the alga? Like wh what's yeah. going on in there? Yeah, good question. We take the whole lichen body, so what we call the thallus of mm. the lichen, we take that and we extract the DNA from the whole thing and we sequence everything. So essentially we, we call this like metagenomics, right? Because we do end up with DNA sequences from a whole bunch of different organisms. So like you said that the main fungal partner in the symbiosis, the main photosynthetic partner, so green alga in this case. Um, and then there, there are tons of other fungi in there. There are bacteria, there are other algae, maybe like a tardigrade or two, oh. nematodes. Like it is wild. <laughs> it is an it's an ecosystem in and of itself. Um, lichens have incredibly rich microbiomes. So then it becomes a task of you know I'm really interested in that main fungal partner, mm -hmm. and so it becomes this task of like sorting through all of those data and figuring out which of the sequences actually belongs to that main fungus right and so and this is you know this is a great question because it kind of speaks to like the fund fundamental nature of this symbiosis and of lichens in general right where it's more than just those two partners that we learn about right there's mm. so much going on in there and our taxonomy or the names that we give lichens are always based on that main fungal partner it's the most of the biomass of the lichen it usually produces the structures and the chemical compounds that we use in taxonomy uh, in our taxonomy and so that main fungal partner is kind of the bulk of the scaffold of the lichen that you see the algae of course are essential in that symbiosis as well you know they're photosynthesizing they're the main source of carbon uh, in that you know, I like to say miniature ecosystem. Um, and then all of the other critters are living in and on that structure um, and interacting 
in, I mean, so many different ways, right? There are nematodes that eat algae specifically, nematodes mm. that eat bacteria specifically. Um, you know, we have essentially like a complete food web going on in there. Mm-hmm. So in terms of like just the curiosity of like how many species are out there, then you kind of zoom out with those kinds of concepts into this idea that not only are they habitat in and of themselves as individuals, scale that up to all of the surfaces they cover in a given ecosystem. Like this is a significant contribution to ecosystem health, functioning, biodiversity, conservation in general. Because it's like you said, it's not just the fungus or the algae. It's everything else that's living on or in it. Uh, So I could imagine they also probably have parasites. Like these are like very underappreciated cornerstones of biodiversity and in ecosystem health. Exactly. So if we think about the carbon economy in ecosystems, you know, we have primary producers there, we have these autotrophic organisms fixing carbon. There are nitrogen fixing bacteria often in lichens. And then some lichens actually, rather than associating primarily with a green algal photobiont, they associate with cyanobacteria. That's about about 10% or so of lichenized fungi. And then there are some lichenized fungi that associate with both a green alga and a cyanobacteria, which we call tripartite lichens. So we're thinking about carbon cycling and nitrogen cycling and this like larger scale ecosystem ecology, but we also can consider um, some really, what would you say, some really fundamental processes and contributions as well, like soil formation, right? So lichens break down rocks, they secrete chemical compounds that break down the minerals in rocks, their hyphae can grow into rocks, so they are one part of the soil formation process. In arid systems, lichens form a main component of soil crust communities. Mm. So they're growing directly on the soil, they're aggregating that soil, holding it in place, and they're part of you know that larger community that includes bryophytes and free living cyanobacteria as well. And they're an essential food source for animals as too. So, <laughs> you know, of course our most famous lichen eaters are caribou or <laughs> reindeer and who eat, can eat many kilograms of lichens a day. And their herds really fundamentally rely on lichens both sort of in the tundra and also, you know, the woodland caribou as well. Smaller critters like fl- flying squirrels mm. and pikas and voles and rabbits also eat lichens. (laughs) So, you know, if you're a person who uh, loves the furry critters, you should, I would always argue that you should appreciate the lichens as well. Hell yeah. 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 And I remember finding uh, one of the most beautiful moths I've ever seen in, you know, my living area, not, you know, traveling somewhere distant to see them um, was a lichen that the caterpillars eat. It was like a lichen moth, I guess they call it. And the caterpillars like live entirely on lichens. So even there you're going, oh, my God. And now this thing's like in my garden pollinating stuff. Thanks, lichens. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. There are so many invertebrates that interact with lichens. So in addition addition to the lichen moths, which are a fantastic example, we have the example of lace wings. And lace wing larvae are actually very good at identifying lichens. So lace wing (laughs) larvae cover themselves in bits of lichens from the genus Lepraria, the fairy dust lichens. Um, So if you're ever like looking at lichens on a tree and one of them moves, it's probably a lace wing larva. And so they they coat themselves in this, and they really have this sort of um, little mound of lichens over their back. Yes, it's adorable. And these 
it's really neat because these lichens, these dust lichens are highly hydrophobic. Hmm. Um, and they also produce a lot of compounds that are antifungal, antibacterial, things like wow. this. So it's a very functional little raincoat that these blade wow. sweets cover themselves in while providing themselves fabulous camouflage too. And then when the lace wings are ready to metamorphose, they actually surround themselves with the, <laughs> the dust lichen and they make this little dust lichen capsule. They, you know, presto change, do their thing in there. And then when they're fully metamorphosed, they actually cut themselves out of their capsule and go off and, wow. you know, fly away and live their, the adult part of their life cycle. <laughs> I wonder how many people listening to this that have like been hiking or been doing field work and they're like, that they're like, that's what that thing was. Oh my God. <laughs> I love yeah. those moments. But mm -hmm. what's amazing to me is, you know, here you are, you, you know, a lot of days you're probably in a lab working on genetic stuff, uh, you know, sequencing genomes, doing really cool things with computers and high fancy equipment. But it does sound like this, this pathway you've taken with your career and your research has really connected you more to ecosystems in a very big way that, you know, on the surface, just saying I study lichen isn't readily apparent, but that is so good to hear directly from someone doing it because, you know, you don't have to necessarily be like, I'm going to study the evolution of this lichen. Here's a bunch of different avenues we just briefly touched on that can get you looking at lichen in a different way. And for me, the big thing that kind of brought my attention to lichens in my life uh, in a big way was first learning how important they are for just understanding air quality. The idea that lichen can kind of be this litmus test for how good are we doing with air in a given area? I mean, that to me was one of the big moments where you're like, oh, those things are alive and they're telling us something about our interaction with the world and how it can then affect us. Yeah. Lichens are used worldwide for air quality monitoring, actually. Wow. And so in the U.S., one of our sort of longest running and most comprehensive air quality monitoring programs really fundamentally relies on studying what lichens exist in an area and how abundant they are. So really wow. commu lichen communities can provide us with a really kind of nuanced perspective huh. on air quality because different species respond to different types of air pollutants hmm. in different ways. And also because they're, you know, continually exposed to the environment, they're really absorbing everything from the air all the time. So people also use them to look at things like stable isotopes, and they also look at things like heavy metal accumulation using more chemical analyses. Hmm. So there, even if you look at lichens as a uh, route for understanding our air quality, there are a lot of different ways people use them to do that. Wow. I love the idea that municipalities still to this day rely on someone who is decent with lichen taxonomy to be able to even get, because it's one thing to be like, I study air quality. It's like, yeah, but what do you know about lichens? Uh, <laughs> you know? It, it, it keeps some of, some lichenologists employed. Yes, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Actually, quite a few. And some amazing people like Linda Geyser and Amanda Hardman and... I get just so many people. I don't think I could list them all. That's here. awesome. Well, yeah. A grand shout out to all the lichenologists finding ways to, you know, bring lichens to the forefront of our attention and, and celebrate them. But in speaking of that, I mean, this is what we just talked about there is very apparent when you walk from, say, the suburban uh, rural interface into a city. And you, if you're paying attention, you really do see some stark differences in the sort of flora fauna 
mycological communities that are going to appear in those different areas, which brings us to why we reconnected in the first place for all of this, a book you have put out with your colleague called Urban Lichens, a field guide for Northeastern North America. Uh, I love this. Someone like me that doesn't have the patience to like put all of these disparate resources together and start looking at an entirely different walk of life than I'm used to, this is what was sorely needed. And what's even better is this is giving it to a growing segment of the global community of humans on this planet. More and more people are moving to cities. More and more people are feeling disconnected in the urban environment from nature. But books like this are really going to help with that because Anyone can go outside anywhere and potentially see something like a lichen, no matter where they're living. So wh- wh- where did this start for you? What, what was the impetus for this book? It's exactly what you just described, right? Yes. So, I, <laughs> um, so I was a graduate student in New York City and uh, I at the New York Botanical Garden and the City University of New York Graduate Center. And while I was there, I first started looking at urban lichens when I was the lichen expert for a Macaulay Honors College BioBlitz in Central Park a number of years ago. Nice. Uh, and that was really fun. And so I, you know, spent a couple days wandering around the park with undergraduate students looking for lichens. And, you know, honestly, when I accepted that gig, I was sort of like, okay, well, what are we going to find here? <laughs> like, this is, I hope it's not too much of a, you know, a, a non-exciting experience for these students. <laughs> and then it was like, oh my gosh, there's so many lichens. I had, you know, I had, I hadn't even stopped to look in the city because I had a little bit of a preconceived wow. notion of cities not being a great place for lichens to live. And so that was a big moment to be like, oh, dang, there are lichens here. <laughs> and there are way more than we ever thought there were. So that was the initiation point into like looking at urban lichens. And I you know, continued to participate in these bioblisses with Macaulay Honors College and just kind of slowly had these opportunities to take closer and closer <laughs> looks. Um, and every single time that I would give a little lichen walk in the city, at the end, somebody would say, this was fascinating. I love lichens. I had no idea this was, you know, these were growing around me. What do I do next? How, what is the next resource? Like, I want to learn more. And there are some fantastic books about lichens. So like The Lichens of North America by Ernie Brodo. But there's nothing, you know, really, there was nothing really urban specific. And there was no, there was no field guide that I could point people to and say, well, if you, if your goal is to be able to identify the species that live, you know, outside of your apartment or around the, in the parks around you in the city, I don't, unfortunately, I I don't have a resource to give you. And so that happened enough times that I said, okay, well, (laughs) time to make that resource. (laughs) Um, And, and as I was sort of contemplating that, I realized that there had not been a comprehensive checklist of lichens for New York Hmm. in about a century. Wow. Yeah. And so following that rabbit hole, I thought, uh, well, I guess it's time for somebody to do that. Uh, And then from there, we probably need a field guide. And (laughs) what a great way to be able to kind of expand this message because you know myself and then my co-author James Lindemer at the New York Botanical Garden 
and the other lichenologists out there in the region and the whole Northeast, we all, I think, try to share our knowledge. Um, I would say most lichenologists are really generous with their knowledge, but there are only so many of us. So we needed a book. (laughs) And, and here it is, it's come to fruition. And yeah, it was, I don't, was this, I don't know if we were recording at this point, but I even said like, I got the offer to review this book and I said, yeah, I need to learn more about lichens. And then it, it, I didn't pay attention to who it was. And then lo and behold, it was you. And I was like, oh, hey, all right. <laughs> so here we are. But I, I have to say like everything you attempted to do, you succeeded in and just the accessibility of this guide, you know, okay, I use a lot of keys. I'm really into like identifying plants, but Lichens are a completely different ballgame for me. And so the fact that I can pick this up, walk outside and actually use it is really cool. And what's neat is, you know, you've got information, descriptions, you know, sort of the natural history side of things. But in the back, you also have a key that people that want to get a little bit more technical want. You have beautiful imagery, but it's not an accessible imagery. Uh, which I think is really important because sometimes people will only include the most ideal images of something and you're like, you're never ever going to see it like that unless you tagged along with that person at that moment. So everything about this just screams accessibility to me. And that to me, uh, you know, that is so important when it comes to a group like this because it can get really intimidating really fast. Yes. So (laughs) that was exactly the goal in designing this book. So I was thinking back to when I learned lichens and the things that were hard. And I really like kept that in mind as I started in on this project. And then I will say, you know, this was actually a fabulous collaboration between myself, uh, James Lendemer and our photographer and illustrator, Jordan Hoffman. And I think, you know, with our powers combined, I do, I'm, I'm really pleased with how this turned out. Um, so James wrote the key at the back, which I love, and I think it adds an incredible value to this book. Um, and then you pointed out the pictures and yeah. this I think was key. So there's this phenomenon where, you know, lichens in urban centers are really stressed. They're in this stressful environment, you know, urban areas are hotter, then surrounding natural areas, they're drier, there's a high degree of disturbance. Um, and we end up with in this situation of having what I like to call the city morphs, right? So the <laughs> city dwelling individuals are stressed out, maybe like the humans that live there too sometimes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Corollaries they, there. <laughs> yep. And um, they look different. So all hmm. of these pictures in here, in the the species treatments were of individuals that were actually living in an urban center. Because like you said, you usually have the most ideal, most beautiful, you know, happy, luxuriant, flourishing (laughs) individual photographed and guides, but you never see that individual. And you certainly never see that individual if you're, you know, walking around in a dense urban environment. Yeah. And then on top of that, the tools of sort of understanding because like another thing that annoys me sometimes is like oh this calyx is three millimeters to 12 like i don't i don't have a ruler or if it's attached to the book i'm not it's just inconvenient but what you have Uh included here uh with an actual like (laughs) measurement just to give you an idea is most pictures are either with a coin or a metro card and somewhat no matter what city you're in you have a version of that on you or most people do i should say so if you've got a dime or a penny a quarter or some sort of card 
that's roughly the same size and shape as a Metro card, which they should all be because they fit in your wallet. (laughs) You have what is needed. Everything is on you to take this book out and begin to use it. Was that a strategic decision? Yeah, absolutely. Um, That was exactly right. You know, you putting a scale bar in there, it's like, I think it's hard to to necessarily translate that to what you're looking at. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Metro card was ideal. Not only is it iconic, you know, <laughs> for the for the region, but it is about the size of a credit card. So, you know, even if you're not riding the New York City subway system and you're somewhere like Boston or Washington, D.C., other cities where this book will work well uh, for like an adventuring, you still, you know, you still have a card that's about that size. That's awesome. Yeah. And that that's the hallmark of someone that actually understands what's going on on the other side of the science, the, the what, what, what the common folks such as myself are trying to do when they're just they just want to learn. And what's amazing to me about a book like this is just how many people are going to get their hands on it and unlock a whole new world that like, as we kind of hinted at throughout this entire discussion, really is a rabbit hole in and of itself uh, of discovery. And what excites me the most is the fact that, you know, this is a still a work in progress. A book like this is never going to be complete, no matter how hard any of you can try. But what's amazing is that armed with this, anyone who's curious enough could go outside and potentially discover something new because simply people have not been looking. And and even if they have, things are different in the urban environment, as you hinted at. Yes. So my hope is that this you know, in addition to making lichens accessible to whoever wants to go look at them and learn more, is that it will spur on more research in this area because I, you know, I am sure that there are plenty of undocumented lichen species that inhabit urban centers and we needed a place to start from, right? Urban areas are also really dynamic Right. We and yeah. we live in a very uh, a world that's like shifting rapidly all the time. So we have the factor of climate change. Um, we have this factor of, con- you know, continued urbanization. Right. So by 2030, we expect that about 60 percent of the human population will live in an urban conglomerate. Wow. Um, as of 2018, that number is 55 percent. So we see Ooh. continued growth. And there are a number of other ways we can look at that. So in 2018, for instance, there were 548 urban areas with over 1 million people. Wow. And by 2030, that number is projected to increase to 706. The number of mega cities, so cities with over 10 million inhabitants, uh, was 20 was 33 in 2018 and we're looking at another 10 mega cities being added to the roster by 2030 Dang. so 43 mega cities so this trend of urbanization is really clearly going to continue and with that in mind and this sort of the advent of the field of urban ecology it's kind of an exciting time to study these yeah. urban centers right and they're are a lot of questions that I still have about, especially lichens in urban areas, but biodiversity in general, um, things like how can we support the most biodiversity as possible? How can we share the spaces? How can we design urban areas that are, you know, biodiversity friendly and human friendly? Um, and, you know, in addition to just looking at like species that in- can inhabit cities and studying how they might use cities, we also really 
study those systems be because they tell us something about ourselves too, right? Mm -hmm. About our cultures, about our day-to-day -day environments and about our society. And of course, it always this of course always comes back to the lichens because they have a really unique story to tell us. Totally. And it brings to mind a lot of the times when you hear about environmental issues, you start talking about like overpopulation of deer or something like that. People will like default. Well, that's a human problem. Okay. Yeah. Problems are inherently human because we define them as <laughs> we decide. But, you know, deal with the human side of it. There's a lot of ethics involved. If we can just kind of emphasize this idea that we're part of the system, that everything we're doing, whether it's in an urban or a rural area, is influencing the ecology of a region and can play a role in the ecology of a region. And what you just outlined there is kind of the same trickles I'm hearing from like the, the insect people, the arachnid people, uh, the plant people even, is that you know, we've kind of ignored cities as these sterile, non-natural environments for a long time. And the more we go looking, the more we're finding it's not the same. Obviously, things are drastically different. Maybe ecology is playing out in slightly different ways. You know, different combinations of rules apply. But that doesn't mean we can't, A, do better and also try to understand what's there and why it's there and what isn't and why it might not be. You know, that's the kind of questions that really excite me moving forward as someone that's not really, uh, you know, involved in city life in a big way. You know, I grew up in the country, but it, it's, it's very important that we start looking in these places to understand what it is, why it is, and how we can do better for it. Yes. And I've been thinking along those lines for a while now. And after looking closely at the lichens in New York and visiting a number of like different types of settings there. So green spaces, but mm -hmm. all sorts of different types of green spaces from like highly manicured to more wild to like places like graveyards, something really cool that came out of that was that it's like it's clear that lichens really prefer the more wild spaces hmm. in the city and i love thinking about wild like wildness in the city <laughs> and by that i really mean like unmanaged and unmanicured but it really is kind of wild like you have these even like just scraps of land where nobody's necessarily engaged in any intensive horticulture or like cleaning very often or um, things like this and the lichens really love those spaces hmm. and when they colonize the city that's kind of where they choose in a way to hmm. exist and it it's also seems that um well james and i did an experiment a while ago a while ago where we tried to actually purposefully reintroduce some lichens hmm. to the city so we moved a cladonia so reindeer lichen from the pine barrens and um usnea mutabilis so this is like a old man's beard type of lichen we brought them from the pine barrens to the new york botanical garden um, because we knew that they like they lived kind of nearby, but like just out of the city in a couple places. And so we were wondering, like, can we purposefully bring these back in to New York? Um, and it turned out they all died within oh. two years. And so it just bummer. kind of, yeah, it was a big bummer. <laughs> it was a small experiment. I will say that. But it kind of pointed to this, this idea that we can't necessarily directly control what lichens live in urban centers. So we are in a situation of more of a situation of um, generating and supporting environments that will work for them. And in turn, you know, they're telling us something about our air quality, right? And this is especially important because 
many lichens are sensitive to air pollutants that do directly negatively harm human health. Hmm. And so it's, you know, just to make that a little bit more concrete, right? So we, oh, air quality, you know, lichens respond to air quality, this and that, but it's really like a lot of air pollutants that cause disease in humans, even things like lung, lung cancer. So mm. it does actually serve us well to create these spaces that work for lichens and then keep our eyes on, you know, keep watching them and observing them. Yeah. I mean, what better way to kind of gauge our, our progress, I guess, if you want to call it that as, as a species, uh, you know, modernizing this world is really kind of understanding how well we keep certain species around. And, you know, that's another thing this book can unlock is start paying attention to your local environment, which lichens are growing there, which aren't, what are they sensitive to? What aren't they sensitive to? Do you even give you know, sort of, um, it puts the power back in the, the, the everyday person's hands to say like, no, there is data. I have some data to show that this is maybe not the best place or maybe something's going on. It, it really kind of empowers people to make, you know, these insights, but also kind of maybe give back to the community, get involved in what's going on with air quality mitigation and, and those sorts of things. And it's amazing that, uh, once again, lichens can kind of be that catalyst for this sort of thing. And books like this allow that to happen, which is super exciting. But, you know, when you're thinking about where to go looking, it's one thing to have this book and be like, I'm going to go identify a lichen. Well, you kind of have to find them too, right? And so for people listening that are like me that are really new to this, I mean, if you look in the pictures, you can kind of get a sense that they're growing on different substrates. So is there sort of like vertical segregation of different species, ones that live up in the canopy of trees versus sort of on the trunks or down on the ground versus ones that live on rocks or ones that live on rotting wood. I mean, is there, are there places to go looking that make it easier or harder to find certain species than others? I guess, <laughs> do they have habitat preferences? This is my long winded question here. <laughs> in short. Yes. Okay, uh, cool. <laughs> we're done. In here. A, no. a little bit more length. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of my favorite city dwellers is sidewalk fire dots, Caloplaca ferrexisma, which grows, you know, where it, its name suggests. It's this, it looks like these orange pinpricks mm. and it grows on cement. And if you can find some cement that isn't super frequently disturbed, so like it, it likely won't be like in the middle of a high use sidewalk, for instance, but if you can find like the crevices and cracks and other areas, you this this species is, you know, it's everywhere. So that's a really good one. And then the two that two species that I suggest all people in urban areas in the Northeast learn hmm. are Physia milligrana and Candelaria concolor. Okay. These are two folios lichens. The Physia is a gray color and Candelaria concolor is a lovely orangey yellow. And you will see them on, especially towards the bases of trees. Um, and they they are often on street trees, on the bark of street, street trees and in cities as well, like or in the parks as well. And they you can even see those sometimes from afar, right? So this, especially the Candelaria con color has this lovely sort of gives a sort of lovely orange sheen to hmm. tree bases. I'm just thinking of like walking around recently. I'm like, I think I've seen both of them. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, those are the two. There's also, and then the the another species I highly recommend is Flavoparmelia caparata. And if you live um, pretty much anywhere in the eastern U.S., 
and you see sort of a yellowy green blob on a tree while you're driving around mm. it's probably the species it is everywhere <laughs> so we call it a 40 mile per hour lichen yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it does pretty darn well in cities too oh that's cool some some common players to kind of get your your palette arranged around what it takes to identify a lichen to look at them kind of get a sense of like what their bodies are like and and if you're anything like me it's the minutia that really gets me excited like i said give me a hand lens and a rock and uh, it's hours of fun um, and exploration but one of the favorite things i like a to do when I'm looking at, you know, out botanizing and stuff is just kind of look at the bark or look at some rocks and just see those tiny structures. Like it is just so phenomenal that like the entirety of this organism's being is wrapped up in like their reproductive structures are these tiny, even smaller minutia on top of like a little crusty coloration. And sometimes like you already outlined the variability in color on this rivals what we'd see in a lot of plant communities even. Lichens are definitely best enjoyed through a hand lens. That's when the magic really happens. Even better, you know, if you have access to a microscope, take some back and look at them because I promise, I guarantee that you will be surprised and delighted. And if you're not, you can write me an email about that. That's fine. (laughs) I don't want to meet the person that writes you that email. (laughs) Yeah, me neither. Maybe that's not a good invitation actually to put out there to the world. Um, the second thing is, yeah, lichens come in all so many beautiful colors. And a lot of the colors you see are a, sort of a gray green or a gray bluish color. And that's um, really this attributed to a particular compound called atronorin. Hmm. A lot of them are yellow green. Uh, and that is uh, what you're seeing there is usnic acid. Hmm. And then, you know, you have all sorts of other like brown and black and the really, really yellow pigments and the orange pigments. Um, there are lichens that are red. You know, it's really the, the full rainbow of lichens <laughs> is out there to be observed. And then what's even cooler. So if you do an even, you know, if this book gets you a little bit excited about lichens and then you really want to take the next step and do a deep dive, uh, if you go to key lichens out using a more complicated key, you'll quickly come to the point where it asks you to do some chemical tests on lichens. So you might see something like a K test or a C test. Uh, And so those uh, tests change the colors even more. So you have this (laughs) potential to see things like purple. So you might put some potassium hydroxide on some lichens, some lichens, especially many of the orange ones. If you put a strong base on them, that orange pigment will turn purple. And this is really neat because essentially uh, changing the pH uh, changes the underlying molecular structure of that pigment. And it goes from reflect from sort of reflecting orange light to reflecting purple light. And it's kind of like a magic trick in a way. Um, And you brought, you talked about litmus tests before. So if you ever use those pH strips, those are lichen compounds. Stop it. No, I'm serious. Wow. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It comes full circle. I was being metaphorical and it's so literal. That's awesome. And this, um, you know, lichens are a fabulous source of natural dyes. Now, I don't condone going out and collecting lichens en masse, Mm. you know, 
from a conservation perspective. But, you know, when we look back through human history, you know, before synthetic dyes were actually invented and developed and used on this like industrial scale, and we relied on natural sources for our dye pigments, lichens were very important, were in a very important source. And they're one of the only natural sources for the color purple. Huh. But actually getting that purple color relies on fermenting only, you know, only a subset of lichens will do this, but you have to ferment them in ammonia. Mm. So when I do some occasional small batches of lichen dyes, I go buy ammonia, but I'll just let you consider where maybe people attained large quantities of (laughs) ammonia historically. (laughs) There's a bucket out back. It's full of it. That's exactly right. Yeah. I'll, so, let, I'll let the listeners use their imagination. <laughs> but it is a beautiful, beautiful colors of purple. And then many lichens produce yellow dyes and some Rad. lovely br- brown dyes as well. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and graphic. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, keeping this idea of like respecting lichens, understanding what they've gone through to even be where you see them, and also the conservation side of things, I realize generalizing about this group of organisms is damn near impossible, but many of them grow extremely slowly, take forever to reach uh, a decent enough size where you can even start to pick them out on the landscape. And when you see large colonies of like the reindeer lichen or something like that, I can only imagine the centuries it took for them to get there. And so what pains me is to go into these hobby stores and see the reindeer lichens that are spray painted different colors. I'm like, that is hundreds of years of growth that you've just pulled out and someone's going to put it in a cute little diorama. So lichens can be endangered too. I mean, that's, that's, I guess the point I'm trying to get at, but like show some respect for these ancient organisms. And lichen collecting and gathering in that way is pretty much unregulated. So if you are buying lichens from some commercial source, or you can buy bags of lichens on places like Etsy, in general, that is completely unregulated. Hmm. So people are, who knows where they're collecting them? Who knows if they're collecting endangered species or taking so much that uh, populations are being extirpated? We have no idea. And we there aren't really, there are so few mechanisms to actually implement uh, really strong conservation measures for fungi in general and yeah. lichenized fungi in particular in this case. Um, so I think it really, you know, at this point, point um, often falls to local land managers, you know, many of which who really do a great job of incorporating lichens into their uh, management programs and plans. Uh, But it also falls to, you know, us as each of us as citizens of this planet (laughs) to, you know, to, to consider where organisms come from when we buy them from a store, right? It's like to, you, you see, like, there's a lichen here to buy to stop and think like, wow, where could this have come from? Because we can't necessarily cultivate them in the same way we do with plants. You know, we're not like growing crops of these and then harvesting them. And it's fine because, well, they're annuals and they come back every, you know. Um, So it is uh, some, it is, you know, I think this is a a large conservation concern that um, we probably, you know, we don't even fully have enough data to say exactly what's happening. Um, and we do need to be careful of, and many lichens grow slowly, you know, some grow more quickly than others, uh, but they aren't, certainly aren't, 
you know, annuals yeah. out, out there that are readily harvestable in, in most cases. Yeah. And that's a good point you brought up about cultivation is every once in a while I get an email or see it in plant groups that are like, is anyone growing lichens commercial? Like, no, I don't. I personally know of no one that's cultivating lichens other than like, oh, they're growing on my car and I don't know why. <laughs> like you kind of have to just <laughs> let them do what they do. And it's, you know, the, you're at the mercy. And then, you know, tying this back to what we started with in terms of like their role in the ecosystem, their their position within the ecosystem and all the other organisms that we know about and probably still have yet to learn a lot about relying on that. Imagine the impact you're having on them when you're buying a bag full of spray painted lichen from the hobby store that was probably ripped out of the wild unregulated you know there's just so many levels to this that it's like smart consumerism like there's a big part of it that's that they may be natural products but that doesn't mean they were sustainably taken and in that case whenever i see a lichen for sale in a hobby store i then do the mental calculation of saying like this is a national chain they probably all are carrying this wow <laughs> that is a sad <laughs> this is not a good situation. And especially when, when we stop to consider all of the other threats that organisms face on this planet and, you know, and in this case, lichens in particular. Um, but when we add in habitat loss and logging and conversion of natural landscapes and air pollution and fra habitat fragmentation, it becomes this like compounding situation where then we ask ourselves, do I really need to put this lichen into my, you know, X display? Well, <laughs> there's probably something else that could, that can do in that situation. Yeah. yeah. And it's across the board. I mean, plants and lichens and fungi, mm -hmm. it's, you know, the, the trend of habitat loss is not slowing or reversing anytime soon, unfortunately. And until we get better as restorationists and stewards of the landscape, our natural areas and the species that they support are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And we, you know, I don't see a, a, a mathematical equation that results in extracting more and more ever becoming sustainable. So yeah, think twice, <laughs> I guess is the message we're trying to send here. Um, but you know, this is awesome. Again, I can't tell you how cool urban lichens is a field guide to Northeastern North America. I'm sure it would apply. Uh, you know, you can still get use out of this outside of Northeastern North America, but that's where your focus was now. That's where a lot of people are living, uh, more so as the years go by, but kudos to this wonderful guide. I will put up links so everyone can go and purchase it, but, uh, thank you so much for this guide, but also taking the time to talk with us. And let's hope that, you know, Lichens are rising on the conscious awareness of some people, at least, uh, uh, around the public sector. So thank you again for all the efforts you're putting in to understand these incredible organisms. Thanks, Matt. And th thank you for inviting me back on the show. And yeah, you know, I'm always happy to spread the lichen love. And um, <laughs> I hope folks enjoy this book. And l I look forward to seeing what people you know, discover as they go out on their urban lichen adventures. Awesome. Well, with that in mind, if people want to find out more about your work, pick up a copy of the book or anything like that, where do you recommend they go looking? The book is being published by Yale University Press. Um, so you can pre-order it on their website now, um, along with, you know, any major bookseller or get in touch with your local bookstore. Um, it is it is up. You can purchase it. It looks like it will um, be released later in November. So maybe perfect timing for a Christmas or a holiday present. 
Excellent. Well, I, again, I will put up links so people can pre-order that. Uh, but do you have like a Google Scholar page or some social media stuff you want people to know about? Otherwise, that's fine if you don't. Yeah. So re- you can find me on ResearchGate and Google Scholar. I have, oh, I have a lab website as well. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Cool. All right. Just throw yeah, that in there. So I'll send you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I do exist online and you can find me, can find me on Twitter as well. Excellent. Well, again, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us and uh, go Lycans, right? Yes, always. <laughs> All right. Well, hang in there and stay healthy and uh, yeah, enjoy yourself. Uh, it's, it's a great, great amount of work you're doing. Thanks, Matt. Cheers. <laughs> All right. That wraps up another fascinating conversation. I thank Dr. Allen so much for all the effort she puts into bringing lichens to the forefront of people's attention. As you heard, they are so important, and learning about them is to learn about their connection to all other aspects of the environment. Of course, you can find the link to pre-order this wonderful field guide, Urban Lichens, a field guide for Northeastern North America, on the show notes for this episode. So just head over to indefensiveplants.com slash podcast to find all of the relevant links there and pick yourself up a copy. You will not be disappointed. It is a great field guide, super accessible, and You don't even have to live in the northeast of North America to take advantage of it. It is widely applicable to a lot of places in North America. But regardless, go check out the links there. Uh, Of course, if you are enjoying the show and you would like to support it, head on over to patreon.com slash plants and check out all the wonderful kickbacks we have for supporting the show, which includes producer credits like the one I have for you right now. A big shout out to Sarah P for supporting this podcast. Sarah went over to Patreon and signed up at the producer credit level. So they're getting all of the kickbacks possible, including a producer credit, which is pretty cool. Otherwise, consider supporting the show through merch, my book, or just hitting that subscribe button. But that is it for this week. Until next time, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.